This episode's part of a special feature series on New York City and is a co-presentation with the Museum of the City of New York with generous support from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Find us at yourhometown.org or on your favorite podcast app. No book of homiletics can teach you how to talk to the pain you know. And do you still find yourself drawing on that feeling? Oh, yeah. To this day? Absolutely. That's the go-to for you. That's the place That's you the go to. That's the go-to for me. It is not only the go-to, it's the never left. It never left mm-hmm. me. Where did you grow up is a question we're all asked a lot. But the answer is never as simple as a place on a map, is it? It's about the kid inside of us and what happened to them there. Before we met the world and the world met us. I'm Kevin Burke, and this is Your Hometown. My guest is the Reverend Al Sharpton, preacher, leader, activist, host on television and radio, and too often of late, a eulogist at public funerals full of private pain. In his hometown of New York City, he's been a fixture for years in the front pages, especially when he first burst onto the scene in the 1980s. Now, for some people I talk to, you just have to mention some of those headlines from that decade, And they think of him right away, and they're out. They're done. And they even get mad at you when you mention his name. Now, he knows this. He's a New Yorker, and he has the scars to prove it. For others, I find, though, Al Sharpton is a veteran civil rights leader of the Northern Movement, an establishment figure who politicians want to be seen with at his National Action Network, and the one whom grieving families call when they need someone to stand with them as they deal with the shock of a father brother, son, mother, sister, daughter, being taken too soon through violence. Today happens to be the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And it was in watching Al Sharpton speak at the funeral, to the world, but especially to George Floyd's children, that I found myself wanting to talk to him about his own childhood and where he finds the words to comfort kids in one of the worst moments of their lives. That's the Al Sharpton I wanted to meet, and I did. And it's the Al Sharpton I invite you to meet too. Because as you'll hear, while those who know him only from the press have a very difficult time imagining him as anything but the adult version, his experience of the kid inside himself and what he lost and what he found back there is right near the surface. When he and I sat down to talk at his office in Manhattan last summer, it was in the middle of a packed morning but it didn't take us long to get into the time and place of his growing up. His parents had a house on Logan Street in the East New York section of Brooklyn before they moved to Hollis, Queens. We didn't start there though, but at their Pentecostal church, the Washington Temple of Church of God in Christ under the direction of Bishop F.D. Washington, a major figure in Al's early life. Bishop Washington had built up the church from a revival meeting under a tent into a congregation large enough to take over the old Lowe's Theater on Bedford Avenue, the scene of Al's origin story as the Wonder Boy preacher of Brooklyn. Reverend Sharpton, I wanted to begin by a startling fact, uh, which I read about and that I think is pretty amazing, which is you preached for the very first time when you were just four years old. And I'm wondering if you can go back for us and paint a picture of that scene, what you remember about that occasion, and what was drawing you to the church 
and what the church was seeing in you, you think, that led to this extraordinary moment? Well, I was uh, born in, in Brooklyn, New York, and my parents owned a four-family house uh, in the East New York section of Brooklyn, uh, 542 Logan Street. By the time I was born, they were members of uh, Washington Temple. So I remember at around three years old, I was baptized by Bishop Washington and uh, became a member of the church. And I became a member of what they called the Junior Usher Board. And it was little kids that would give out the programs and we would help the adult ushers seat people. Every year they would have an anniversary program to like a morale booster for everybody to see these kids and who's been doing this church service for a year. Particularly year when I was four, which would have been um, in 1959. I would be uh, uh, five that October. But this was in July. I remember the date, July 9th. The adult advisor, whose name was Hazel Griffin, uh, got us together, maybe been about 15 or 20 of us, and said, uh, what do y'all want to do on the program? Because we want to show the talents of the juniors. And uh, one young man who was about two years older than me, was named Ronnie Dyson, who later in life starred in Hair, the Broadway play Hair, and did had an R&B rhythm and blues singing career. But he's a kid then, he's six years old, seven or most. He said he wanted to read a poem. And my sister, uh, Joyce, said she wanted to sing a song. I said I wanted to preach. And all of the kids started laughing. But I had used to come home from church service on Sundays and get my sister's dolls, put on my mother's bathrobe, imitating the clerical robe that Bishop Washington wore, and I would preach to the dolls what he had preached in church, to the best of my memory and ability at three years old. What is your purpose? Are you using the agencies in the church to develop your potentials? No one knows whether you progressed but you, because you're in your own custody. And one day you're going to have to answer for the stewardship of your life. Amen. I felt I could preach. And I felt this compulsion, uh, they would say in the church, this calling. So it was natural to me to say by that point, I want to preach, even though they laughed. Mrs. Griffin said, don't laugh. Maybe uh, he's being called to preach. And she went and discussed it with Bishop Washington. And he said, let him preach. And I remember that day of the anniversary, July 9th, 59. Uh, there must have been 900 people in the church, pretty full. And uh, they had to put this box there because I was a little kid. I was too short for you to see me over the roster. And I preached from St. John's 14th chapter. Uh, first verse, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And I did about a 12, 15 minute sermonette. And that started my preaching. It's amazing because I, I'm Catholic and the age of reason used to be seven 
communion at eight. So when you think about four, even interpreting, even knowing what to say, what to even uh, signify on, is so unusual. Did you prepare a lot for that? Um, <coughs> My that older stepsister helped me prepare in terms of uh, mm -hmm. reading the scripture, but it was mostly extemporaneous because you have to remember I'm four going on five. I was not even in school. I was going to get ready yeah, to go to Yeah, pre-kindergarten. Right, as pre-kindergarten, and I was getting ready to go to school, and I could not read and write. One of the reasons why later in life I never use a manuscript speaking uh, because I learned how to speak publicly before I learned how to read and write and never followed a manuscript. And uh, so it shaped and molded my whole life as a public speaker, started in uh, uh, Washington Temple in Brooklyn. And do you remember how you felt being up at that rostrum, being on that box, speaking to that 900-person assembly at, at, that day? At first, maybe the first 30 seconds, I was a little nervous. But then I felt like uh, a glove that fit your hand. I felt right at home, even at that young age. All of my uh, fear or stage fright, gone in 30 seconds. And uh, I just felt natural. And uh, to this day, I feel most natural preaching a sermon or delivering a speech. Do you remember the reaction that you got? They were, you know, very, very applauding, standing up. And a lot of it, you know, as, as you grew older, you mm -hmm. understood was, it, was the uniqueness of a little boy doing this. I don't know how much of my content they were listening to, uh, but it was an enthusiastic reaction, which I always felt uh, encouraged me to keep doing it, and I did. By the time I was seven, I was preaching uh, as a, for youth days at a lot of the churches in Brooklyn. And it's something you took it really seriously because you talked about how, you've written about how you would listen to records of the great pre preachers obsessively, kind of listening to the rhythm, what they were saying. So I was going to ask you, what was the ritual like for you to get these records? Because when you think about being a kid, most kids are thinking about the top 40, or they're listening to 45 records of R&B or rock and roll, but that was your thing. No, my Point thing was uh, getting the LPs. At that time, you could get albums of great preachers, and I would listen to them over and over and over again. Oh, Lord, when I heard him say, don't become afraid. And uh, don't feel discouraged. And uh, don't feel alone. And uh, no matter who else turn against you? Lo, yeah. mm -hmm. I'm with you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm with you, and I'm more than anybody. Reverend C.L. Franklin was a famous preacher. He come to Washington Temple, and he made a lot of albums. And uh, I would listen to him. Martin Luther King, I'd listen to him. Adam Clayton Powell, and uh, I would. My mother and father would. Uh, get me these albums and I would listen. I wasn't interested in a lot of the games that a lot of kids my age would play. I would be listening uh, to uh, these albums and listening to the rhythm of their speech, listening to the timing of when they would uh, uh, go up or down with their voice and were connected with people. And I, I just grew up with that to, to the point where when we moved to Hollis, 
uh, in the basement of the house, my mother built me a little chapel. And I used to go in the uh, basement and put on, by then I had my own little clergy robe. And uh, I would preach, I'd have the, she had, uh, were really picnic uh, uh, benches, would be two or three, which would be my congregation. And I would, uh, I would preach there. So most of my um, uh, friends in the neighborhood would be outside playing stickball or basketball. I'd be in the basement preaching. I want him to be with me. I want him to be with me on my journey as I walk this lonesome way. When the hills get high, when the valleys get deeper, when the road get rougher, I want him to be with me. Yeah, you that want him to be with you this year, let me see your hand. How did it change the household that this little boy has this complete passion for something that is so unusual? I think it changed the household because they had to adjust to the fact, especially when I started getting invited to other churches, they would have to take me and bring me. I'm a kid. I'm, you know, five, six, seven years old. At that time, there was no social media. People would be passing out handbills or flyers. We call it the boy preacher will be at XYZ Church. So in that black church circle, I became known, a little celebrity, which certainly altered home life. And, uh, and it was awkward in school uh, because one, some of your classmates' parents would go hear me preach. So that didn't make uh, too uh, easy for them to uh, adjust to me being in their class. And as you get older, as you get near the age of puberty, try dating girls whose uh, mother and father used to go see you preach. You're not exactly uh, the kind of person that a young 12, 13-year-old girl is. How do you date a boy preacher, a teenage preacher when I got old? So it, 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 it also gave me a sense of um, early in life of self-awareness. And, uh, and, and the strength of being uh, one that would march to beat my own drum because I was doing things differently at the same age as other kids. Uh, and uh, I remember when we had moved to Hollis, I went to PS 134, and I'd write uh, on my homework page, Reverend Al, Alfred at that time, Alfred Sharpton. <laughs> and uh, teach kept saying, you can't write that, you're not a minister. I said, yes, I am. And she could never get it around her head that I was a minister to the point where my mother got a call from the principal and she explained it to him. And Bishop Washington came to the, to the uh, school to explain to the uh, principal that in the Pentecostal church, they accepted young boy preachers and that he had in fact, when I was 10, licensed me to be a preacher, which would become an ordination. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so the principals, you know, told her to just leave him alone. That was probably my first protest that I refused to let people ident identify who I was or limit who I was. The reverse of that is also true, is that, and I didn't think about this until many years later when I was older, that 
if my mother and father had told me no, or if the bishop had said no, how that might have changed my whole life. And it might have crushed my dreams. Because the fact that they didn't say no, and I grew into that, and grew into my own self-identity and self-awareness, meant that for the rest of my life, I never let anybody put me in a preordained box. If somebody grows up from age three to 18, pretty much identifying their own unique lane, it's hard when they get older for you to assign them to somewhere that you're more comfortable with when they're already comfortable in their own skin. Yeah. I was already comfortable with being different. I was already comfortable that the other kids would either mock me or uh, respect me. I was already comfortable that girls would find me different. So I was comfortable with that, and that would follow me the rest of my life. When and I got to be known uh, and would be ridiculed by the media or cartoons, didn't bother me at all. It was like growing up in Brooklyn or in Queens. I was used to that. And do any particular incidents stand out where you were teased or, or mocked or bullied by their kids for, I, what, for I, this I, I remember, peculiarity? I remember when, uh, uh, when, when I first was growing up in Brooklyn on Logan Street, my parents owned the uh, candy store newsstand on the corner, and uh, the adults would always on the block say, here's the boy preaching in an admiring way. So by the time my father was an entrepreneur, made money, we moved to Hollis. And that was a black middle class neighborhood at that time. And he bought a new Cadillac every year. And I remember uh, on one occasion, I went outside, I wanted to play punch ball with the kids. We play in the middle of the street, 199th Street. And uh, they would laugh. Here's a boy preacher's gonna try to play ball. And, and I was determined that I could punch the ball and hit a home run like them because you still want to be able to deal and socialize with the rest of the kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was uh, uh, something that I had to strain to try to do uh, to, handle, to answer my mockers. Never thought about not preaching anymore. I, my thing was I was going to do both. And, uh, but I remember having uh, to overcome being uh, defensive about being mocked, that uh, I could do what other kids did, but I could still be a preacher. One thing I've noticed um, is my son is two and a half, and he's really serious about the guitar. And there's this movie School of Rock with Jack Black, and yeah. he, he plays it, and he likes to listen to all kinds. Chuck Berry, he, he, he completely you know, can, can reproduce and dance just like Chuck Berry, you know, duck walking and all that. And I notice with him that if you, it, when my parents come over, other people see him, if they laugh out of amusement, you can tell that it sort of is not the point for him. And he almost feels, you can tell, wounded by the laughter. It's not, it's not cute to him. It's serious. This is yeah. serious business. That's how I was. And I'm wondering if that was similar for you, that this That's was not a was. play because for you. Because even though I had to deal with sometimes uh, the mocking, which you know I was able to overcome and turn a lot of the mockers around. I, even very young, I'm talking pre-teenage years, I got to where I didn't want to be smiled or, or isn't that cute while he's preaching. 
I wanted them to understand, I'm serious. This is not a cute thing. So at first it was exhilarating, you know, the crowd is up. But then it was like, well, wait a minute. I'm really a preacher. Don't don't act like I'm some, you know, exhibit at a museum or or, or, or animal at a zoo. I want to be taken seriously. I was serious. I felt that I could do what Bishop Washington was doing. And I imagine that the basement temple that you had helped you because you have these dolls. Right. I'm trying to picture that in my mind. They're not talking back. There's no call and response with the dolls. Right. They're just you. So you had to, you, you couldn't rely on the exhilaration in those moments. No. You were just alone in a room. No, you, when you were in, in the church, the call and response helps drive you. But when you're sharpening your skills with uh, inanimate objects like dolls, you got to deal with content and your rhythm is much different. I wanted to be able to not only quote a scripture and, and scream, which is how I started, but be able to fill in those gaps for my congregation, which was my sister's dolls, who no matter how good I was, they weren't going to say amen or clap anyway. And can you picture those dolls in your mind? Can you see them? They oh, yeah. were? What kind of dolls they were? They were, in those days, there were no such thing as black dolls. They were all white with the, like, I remember reddish hair, mm -hmm. and it was dolls that you, you could close their eyes or open their eyes, dressed in little cute uh, uh, dresses. And uh, they were dolls that my sister got maybe for a birthday or Christmas, because she was three years older than me. But uh, I would always, uh, it was funny because she would always know that she had to go to the basement to my chapel to get her dolls. <laughs> and I probably could hear you down there. Oh, I'm yeah, thinking. she could hear me and, uh, uh, you know, everybody in the house could hear me. And it was accepted. Again, the, 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 the privilege I had is that no one tried to shut it down. You will have to give an account of your soul. Your pastor can't make you pray. Your pastor can't tell you don't tell that lie. It's got to be in you. If you haven't got something in you, Paul, Peter, most of the members of the scriptures made mistakes, horrible mistakes, until they found the secret of eternal security. And what do you think it was about Bishop Washington that inspired you to want to come home and, and reproduce his sermons to embody what he had just said to this? I mean, I looked at the Lowe's Theater. It was 5,000 seats, Lowe's yeah. Theater, huge. It's not a small church. No, no, it's a very large church. So he must have made some impression on you to I think home. that I was awed by his fire and passion and ability to move those large amounts of people. And it kind of, it kind of just uh, resonated with me. It was, it was almost like uh, you sit down at a laptop and you put in the right password and it lights up. It lit me up. It connected with me, and uh, it became what I would be in life. Don't glory in your, your, your demonstrations. Don't enjoy the manifestations of your signs and wonders. Peter walked the water. Peter was the one that said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that same brother Peter was the one that said, I don't know him. And then the most prominent people, Bishop Washington became very well known because the church was so uh, large. Politicians would come through because you wanted to get up and talk to people that were voted. 
uh, and some of the biggest gospel artists would come because Bishop Washington's wife, Mrs. Ernestine Washington, was a gospel recording artist. said we even see how Franklin would come and his daughter Aretha Franklin and uh, so I got to see all of these people be around them hang in Bishop Washington's office even though I'm a kid with some of the most prominent people uh, in the uh, 60s uh, Martin Luther King I saw twice at that church Wow! So, so all of these images are in my head while I'm in my formative years literally formative years I ain't I'm not talking about college years, I'm talking about from six, seven, eight till uh, my teens. It became normal uh, because I'd go to church, go in Bishop Washington's office and a congressman was there or Senator Jacob Javits or somebody and it was like, of course they're gonna be here. We're Washington Temple. And it gives you an early kind of self-esteem. And what opened that door to Bishop Washington for you? In other words, I'm pick he's obviously a high profile preacher, 5,000 seat temple. You had this one moment where you spoke at four, but how did you sort of come in under his wing? How did he take note of you? I think when I started preaching and uh, the congregation liked it and they would start using me a lot. I used to uh, be at church all the time and I would kind of drift and find a way to go and sit in his office after the church services. And he let me sit there. And I think the thing that uh, uh, kind of amused him but also captivated him is he was a, uh, a voracious reader. His uh, study was full of books. And he had this habit where he'd always sit after service and read, probably preparing for the next service because he would do two or three on Sunday. And he'd read things and underline it. And I would get a book off his shelf and be underlying things, and I couldn't even read the books at, at, at DZ. And I think it amused him and, and, and captivated him that here was this little kid that wanted to be like him. But it was like understood the boy preacher is going to be sitting there, which gave me access to everybody yeah. that would come see him. And, uh, and people, you know, whereas they would not want to talk business or whatever around other people, you're just a kid. Nobody cared that I was sitting there. He's a kid. He don't know what we're talking about. But I'm taking it all in like a sponge. And that created a, a like bond uh, with him and I as I grew older. And uh, it shaped a lot of my personality. And you have to have so many pieces of your puzzle line up with that because it's the performance. It's the honing the craft like you talked about. It's seeing the business of a church. You have to be interested in all of those things. And you have to have that deep spiritual connection too. As you said, the content. It's not enough to say, oh, this guy's a great performer, I want to be like him. You have to also feel that the underlying force there is a soul force that you're, yeah. that you're drawn to. And, and, and the fact that he was such a great performer but believer, and he would always say, 
uh, that your gift is driven by what you believe. If you don't believe it, it's not going to uh, work. I'd like to know, is this really Jesus that made a world out of nothing? Is this the same Christ, the resurrected name, the archonist of Bethsaida? Is this the same Christ that took nothing, didn't have a pinch of dirt, hammer nail or so, made all the worlds crying, it's almost like a singer and entertainer looking for the right note to sing. And you know that uh, uh, if you're being accompanied by an organist or a symphony, you're looking for them uh, to keep up with you because you're finding that note that you can sing mm -hmm. the song. I would always constantly be searching for that right feeling that my delivery then would take off because Without that feeling, it didn't matter how much content I had, the delivery was missing. Because uh, later in life, I got close uh, with James Brown, the, the mm -hmm. uh, Godfather of Soul, and he, he, he capsulized it best. He used to say to me, Reverend, people can feel you before they hear you or see you. And, and be, to give people that feeling, you have to have it yourself, and that comes from your fundamental beliefs. They've been waiting, they've been watching, they've been waiting at the building. You were talking about how you had exposure to all these extraordinary performers. One of them is Mahalia Jackson, who, you know, you think about her in the early 60s, being at the March on Washington, her historic moment there. Not that long after, you're touring with her, and you perform, you open for her at the historic 1964 World's Fair, which in a different interview, Neil deGrasse Tyson talked about how formative that fair was for him as someone interested in science. It was a big deal. Yeah, well, and I'm they, wondering, they had talk a about that. night at the fair, and uh, in the New York Pavilion, which is a circular uh, kind of bu building out there that's still there, the replica uh, is still there. And uh, often uh, when I'm flying into New York uh, and as the plane is descending, it goes over the world's fin. I look at that circular thing and think about when I was a nine-year-old boy preacher and they had gospel night featuring Mahalia Jackson, and I did the little sermon that I did about five minutes. And I, I, I would tell my daughters or tell whoever was flying, I said, you don't know what that is. And they, you know, because now that the, the uh, tennis uh, mm -hmm. place is nearby. And City Field and all yeah. that, yeah. And But the, to them, that's just some rusty replica. And I said, that was the New York Pavilion, 64, 65 World's Fair. And I preached there when I was nine years old. They were having gospel night because Washington Temple was so big in the gospel circle because we had a big radio broadcast Bishop Washington do every Sunday. They invited various churches. And we were, of course, on the list. And part of what Bishop Washington decided was let Alfred preach. And uh, they gave me five minutes, and uh, I did that. And uh, it, was, it was the first time, though I'd done a lot of churches, it was like a big audience of people that were not necessarily Baptist or Pentecostal. And the give and take, the, the, the uh, call and response was not the same. It was my first exposure on that kind of platform. Mm. And when you're flying in, you see that rusty replica. 
What are you seeing in your mind's eye that other people can't see? What do, what do you see of that night in your memory? I, I remember the nervousness, which was unfamiliar to me because the rest were, became, like I said, a mm -hmm. hand and glove. And probably the first time I spoke before a majority white audience, as I think about it, I never thought of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm nervous because they're not going to say amen, they're not going to yell hallelujah. But I still have to get what I believe out. And the nervousness was combined with a boldness. I'm going to show them. And uh, it drove me. And I think about uh, when I'm flying in and I look at that, I think about how I feel, felt that night. And uh, I remember I was telling somebody 10, 12 years ago, we were flying in late one night on a flight and I told him that story. We're sitting next to each other. And I said, you see that building? I described what happened. And they said, wow, look how far you've come from then. And I said, the key is not how far I came from them. The key is I'm still that little boy inside. The minute you stopped being who you was then, then you didn't succeed. You succumbed to being somebody else. And I never gave it up. I'm still that boy preacher from Brooklyn. So describe what it was like to be at that age, a formative age, and to be in the presence of a talent like Mahalia Jackson. Mahalia Jackson was uh, probably my mother's biggest idol. And uh, my parents broke up when I was uh, 10. And uh, we had to move back to Brooklyn, but aside of Brooklyn, I never knew. And my mother used to play her records almost to the vinyl came off uh, out. Hey, uh, you sing this song, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. And my mother would play it over and over. Because mm. her husband had abandoned her, had a child with her daughter, my stepsister. And it was a painful thing. And we went from owning this corner house on 199th Street, 104th Avenue in Hollis, 10 room house, garage, basement. Cadillac in the driveway to be, to stand for a while in the Albany projects and then move into Brownsville on uh, subway now no Cadillac on welfare now struggling to pay the rent where we used to be the landlords at, at houses and the whole world flipped upside down 
some of Hayes' songs, Nobody Knows the Trouble I See, and songs like that, was what my mother would play. And for me to, uh, later that year and the following year, to be able to do, I would preach during like some of her intermissions with this woman that I felt was the bridge that brought my mother across. And that time in your life, you're just describing it, it sounds like it was an incredible trial. I mean, to have that uh, situation where <clears throat> you're in Hollis, Queens, which is, as you said, suburban Queens. It's really going out towards Long Island, eastern Queens. And in those days, it was like we look at Long Island today, especially yeah. for a black family, because blacks were just moving out to Queens. Yeah, and to have your father leave your mom for your stepsister right. and the circumstances of that and being so young and seeing her go through this. What is the scene in your mind when you, when you tell that story, which you have told? What are I, you thinking I, I about? I think that the thing I most uh, remember, some things that I remember, is that uh, at first my mother tried to hold on to the house. She couldn't pay the bills, so we lost all the utilities. They cut the lights Because your father left. Left. He was we gone. paid for nothing, nothing. Lights were out. Hmm. Uh, gas was out. Winter was freezing, big house. Uh, had to do my homework by candlelight. And uh, uh, and I think about how the whole world flipped upside down. And being uh, 10 years old, have been you know now five or six years preaching, I wondered why God let this happen to my mother. And it transformed, I had the, my, my room, was the corner and right outside of my room was you know the lawn and the uh because we had a lawn wrapped around the whole house mm -hmm. was the lawn and next to the lawn was the driveway into the private driveway for the for the residents and i remember i used to sit at night looking in the dark because we had no lights at that driveway telling myself daddy will come home and uh he never did and it's somewhere in them nights, it would flip in my head that he's not coming, and now you got to take care of your mother. And you've got to uh, be the one responsible. And uh, God will take care of you. The sermons I was going to preach in became personal. And uh, I think that that is what made me uh, a better preacher. Because it's one thing, especially if you're a kid, to preach about trials and tribulations. 
but you don't know nothing about trials and tribulations. Then I knew about trials and tribulations. And the kids that them and their parents used to admire you, or even even those that would laugh, oh, he's a boy preacher, but do it in, in a somewhat admiring way, are now mocking you. They, Daddy left with his sister. They cut the lights off and all. So it your whole world changed and your whole image changed. And uh, you had to deal with that. So I had to grow up the first 10 years, uh, mm -hmm. six of those 10 years, with standing being different. Now you had to deal with being different and disgraced by no action of your own. I'm a result of the weaknesses of my father. And uh, the same kids that would used to point for whom your name too for who I was named junior. after him and yeah. looked after him. yeah and the same kids that would point say that's the boy preacher would point say that's the boy's preacher whose daddy did ABCD mm. they didn't even have no lights and I never forget we had a blackout in the six in 64 mm -hmm. and uh, the kids on the block that would laugh at us with no lights had to knock on the door to ask could they borrow candles because we didn't even know it was a blackout because we didn't have lights anyway and uh uh, it gave me an adjustment in, in life, and it, it also gave me an attitude that uh, no matter what comes, I'm going to be able to get through it. Because how could you at 10 years old see that coming? And especially what it was. And I don't know that I understood the, the, the weight of abandonment and incest, mm -hmm. but I understood how it uh, totally turned my mother into a, a, a wreck for a while. And uh, I think it prepared me for the life I later lived with controversies and all, because I, I grew up in very formative years having to deal with unexpected blows. Yeah, and I was also thinking about on the faith side, you talked about your faith and your relationship with God during this, that the, the before the crucifixion, right, Jesus has that feeling also of doubt. Being forsaken. I, I very, very often, when I preach uh, Good Fridays, even now, I think about uh, where even Jesus would question, uh, can I escape? Will you remove this bitter cup? And that's the point of, uh, I can't take it. That's the point of remove this bitter cup. Why have thou forsaken me? These are all words on the cross. Mm -hmm. It's like, God, why would you do this to me? Why would you do this to my mother? Yeah. Jesus on the cross, why have thou forsaken me? But then at the point of that, it turns and he says, not my will, but thy will. And I think that became my first juncture with that. times in life after that where you're at the point of why me 
make this go away, and then your faith kicks in, and you say, well, if this is your will, I submit to your will. Jesus went through that. And uh, I often talk about that, uh, not necessarily personalize it like I'm doing now, but that is very much deep in me. And I also preach about that there cannot be a resurrection without a crucifixion. All of us want to rise, but none of us want to go down. you got to go down to rise. And you had that experience at so young, and in, in such a painful way. Personally. And, and, uh, and it, wa it was a pain that would not go away because you kind of grew up with it, and the older you got, the more you understood the gravity of what incest was and what mm -hmm. abandonment was. And then I'm going from middle-class Queens and Cadillac to riding the subway uh, with my mother and, and the shame of, of going to get groceries with food stamps and trying to hide from your friends mm -hmm. that you're using food stamps. Well, I used to have whatever I wanted. My parents owned a grocery store. And uh, living in where neighborhoods now where they don't pick up the garbage and where you call the ambulance if somebody's sick and they don't come for hours. You call the police and they don't come for hours. So your whole world flipped upside down. And I, and I, I often think, and I honestly believe this, that a lot of my activism started there because I learned firsthand the difference in a zip code. Because I, I would ask, when we lived the, the first few months on the Albany Projects with some friends of my mother that we call our cousin. And the Albany Projects, where are they? In, in uh, Bed-Stuy. They're in Bed-Stuy, yep. And uh, uh, I used to ask the kids in the projects, why is all that garbage stacked up? You say, oh, they pick up the garbage Saturday. Saturday? Because in Hollis, they pick it up every day. And I started learning the difference in city services and public services uh, by zip code. My mother, uh, we finally got an apartment in Crown Heights after a few months, and then we moved into Brownsville, East Flatbush. And my mother, even once we even moved there, let me keep going to school at PS 134. Because I begged her, I said, let me finish out, you know, elementary school out there, because I know my friends and the teachers know me, and the teachers knew what my father did. So they was almost like my guidance mm -hmm. counselors, you know. And I think I was afraid of the, the, the schools, of meeting new friends and all of that. So I would get up early in the morning and ride uh, three trains and a bus to go to school. I'm still in elementary school, fifth, sixth grade. And uh, I used to spend that hour, hour, 15 minutes to go to school every morning, get the uh, L train in, in uh, Brownsville, Saratoga, Devonia, ride, change the trains at Pennsylvania Avenue, get the uh, Jamaica L ride to the last stop, Jamaica Avenue, then get the Q2 bus to my school and do the same thing back. And I would read on the train. That's where I really developed a lot of voracious reading. And uh, I used to have a book with me all the time. And I got used to being alone. Because I'm on the train just about three hours a day. And uh, that's where I really developed a lot of my reading uh, appetite and my sense of being alone. When you leave early in the morning before everybody's up just about, and you're back when it's just about dinner time, you don't have a lot of time to create friends and all of that. You kind of live, learn to live with yourself. Thank mm -hmm. you.
people, I think, make the mistake of thinking of New York City as one big hometown, but it's a series of hometowns. And for those listening who don't know the difference between Hollis or, and, and Brownsville, it's, they, 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 they don't know that. It's 10 miles apart on a map. It seems like not a big deal. Right. To you growing up, if you could describe the differences inside your homes and outside the homes. In, in uh, Hollis, all the social services are there, even for black families at that time. It may not have been what Jamaica States was like, where Trump grew up. <laughs> But it was, you know, people mowed their lawns, people walked their dogs, uh, people uh, would go to church. Uh, they were proud. Many of them were civil servants or entrepreneurs. I remember the guy that lived directly in front of us in Hollis uh, uh, on Ebony Oil. He was one of the pioneer black businessmen. So you had all of that. Uh, the barbershop was a block and a half up and uh, these supermarkets were clean. It's just a a kind of almost for blacks at that time, uh, an idyllic kind of of life. And I'm sure had uh, my father not left and I stayed there, I probably would have been kind of more moderate, laid back kind of preacher. Probably would have wanted to pastor a church or something like that. You get to Brownsville, uh, and, and, and it's, it's a environment that is always tense and, and always at, at cutting edge because you live on the cutting edge. And uh, it was a whole different world in the same city. So when you hear people talk about the tale of two cities, I lived it. And it wasn't just white to black, it was even within the black community because the black middle class, which I was born and raised till I was 10, is much different than the black lower middle class or lower uh, class, as one sociologist would describe it. And I lived it. It wasn't something that I got out of sociology class. I lived it, and I knew the difference. And so whereas kids in Hollis, uh, you talk to, and they would say, I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be this, I'm that. Where kids in Brooklyn was, man, I just want to make a couple of dollars. And, and they don't care. I, some of them were little kids would run numbers, uh, sheets for the number runners in town. And uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a difference in aspiration. And some of them kids were smarter than the kids in Hollis. But they did not have the environment to show their intellect or their uh, ability. And uh, I saw it firsthand. And I read newspaper articles from <clears throat> the city back then noting that Brownsville, I think the murder rate was soaring in the 60s the in murder Brownsville. murder rate, the did crime you, rate. Did it feel that way to you? Oh, yeah. Uh, it was not uncommon to hear about a death two or three times a week, sometimes that you knew. It was not uncommon to hear guys say, uh, I'm in the Tomahawks, which was a gang. Otherwise, I'm in the Bishops, I'm in the Jolly Stompers. And it was interesting, though, that they all kind of said, well, that's the preacher, leave him alone. And they never tried to induct me in a gang, but they all knew I knew the gang thing. And I, and I kind of wanted to toughen up, because I'm in the neighborhood now. And uh, uh, 
but I was with them but not of them, and they kind of knew that and respected that. And their parents, many of them were churchgoers and knew I was. And even in this situation, they held on stronger than anybody to their belief in God. But it was a much different world. And you and your mother made a way somehow in this environment. How did, that, how did you help one another? Well, my mother became a domestic worker, even though we were on welfare. And I would uh, still preach at churches. And they'd take a little collection and maybe raise $20 the most 25, and I'd give it to my mother to help uh, subsidize what she made as a domestic worker and uh, 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 um, and welfare. I, I remember that every, uh, when we lived in the um, 40 family building in, in uh, East Flatbush, Brownsville, uh, my job on the 1st and 16th every month was to rush home from school and stand by the mailbox to uh, get the welfare check because they would break in the mailboxes. Mm. And uh, uh, so my thing was to, you know, preach a little, uh, the little money I would give to my mother, walk her to the subway so nobody would snatch her pocketbook because there was a lot of pocketbook snatching in those days, later in the afternoon. And uh, after a while, my sister got in trouble. She went to jail. It was just me and my mother. And uh, we kind of like was each other's support system. My mother would say to me in the walks to the train, you know, life's not about where you start, it's where you're going. And uh, and I, again, being different, not being in one of the gangs and not, uh, you know, being in the sports per se, I'd watch the news a lot. And that's where I fell in love with Adam Crane Powell and I'd watch all of the talk shows. You're in a minority! The soul brothers and the soul sisters, they're in the majority, baby. We're in the majority, and we want you to get in with us. Before it's too late, before it's too late, the United States of America is being judged by one unknown, isolated black man or black woman who was senselessly beat to death on the streets of the United States. This is not a great society. This is a sick society. Adam Crane Powell was then 66. I'm uh, 11 going on 12. They were talking about kicking him out of Congress for some impropriety. I wanted to be at the rallies to save my hero, Congressman Powell. Black power means the saving grace of our United States. The United States no longer is an isolated nation. We're living in a world in which the United States and all of Anglo-Saxon society is in a definite minority. The votes of the black and brown people in the United Nations could turn the United States foreign program upside down. And my mother got uh, concerned and said, uh, you don't need to be that, that's of the world. Because Pentecostal folks didn't deal with all that at that time, they do now. And, uh, but I kept watching the news and I kept begging to go to the rallies and uh, all of that. And most of the rallies were in Harlem in his district, but some supporting preachers were in Brooklyn. And she finally brought me uh, to Bishop Washington. And she said, Bishop, he keeps talking about these rallies, he keeps watching on TV and talking to these guys in the street. 
and they're not church people. And uh, I, I, I understand civil rights. You know, I support uh, Dr. King and them is doing down south. I'm from Alabama. She was from Alabama. Right. She said, but I don't want him to lead the church and his ministry and all. And Bishop Washington kind of said, well, you know, we had Dr. King here at the church and the Freedom Riders. It's not sinful. It's just another form. He said, I know what to do. And uh, y'all meet me whatever day. We met him at his house. And he lived on President Street in Crown Heights, which was almost the same kind of upper uh, class, or really middle class, but to us upper mm -hmm. class in the black community, as Hollis. On his block were some of the biggest, most prominent ministers in uh, New York. Right across the street from him was Reverend Dr. Gardner Taylor, who was considered the dean of the oh, black Oh, yeah, it's a huge name. Down the block was Dr. Sandy Ray, who my mother and father used to be a member of his church. The next block was Reverend William Jones, who was the head of the chapter of Dr. King's organization in New York. SCLC? Yeah, mm -hmm. SCLC Operation Bread mm -hmm. And uh, Bishop Washington walked us across the street Dr. Jones' house. And uh, Dr. Jones welcomed us in. And Bishop uh, Watson said, uh, Bill, uh, you know, this is the boy preacher. Bill said, oh, I know who he is. The boy preacher, oh, the kind of laugh. And uh, he said, uh, you know, he's getting into all of this, watching the news and wanting to do this, that, and the other. And uh, his mother here is concerned about him, don't want to leave the church. And uh, he says, well, I'll tell you what, why don't y'all hand him over to me? I could use him to rally a lot of the young people in the churches to help do the picket lines and the marches and stuff. And I was like, I like that. And uh, uh, he uh, took me in. And I became, at 12 years old, a member of Operation Breadbasket. the way it's going to be. When I get to the toll booth in glory, when I approach the holy city, I expect to be waved right on through. Yes! Uh-huh. I don't expect any trouble at heaven's gate. And uh, by the time I was 13, early that year, uh, which would have been 68, I became youth director. And uh, that April, they killed Dr. King. Mm -hmm. About a year later, we opened the office of Operation Breadbasket on uh, Fulton Street, the middle of bed over the Black Bank Carver Savings Bank. And uh, the head of Operation Breadbasket was gonna come cut the ribbon. And uh, uh, Reverend Jones said, Alfred, come here, I want you to meet the uh, head of uh, Breadbasket. And uh, he walked me in this office, and Jesse Jackson was sitting behind the desk. And uh, I remember I looked, I said, that's that guy out of Chicago. And he said, yeah, this Jesse Jackson. This is our youth leader, Alfred Sharpton. And Jesse kind of, he had on a buckskin vest and a Dr. King medallion. Mm. Days I later wore. Yes. He had on one that night. And uh, no tie and all that, big afro. And I said, oh, he's hip, I, can, I like his style. Cause it, 
It's kind of flamboyant like Adams was. And Dr. Jones was one of these button-down kind of preachers. And uh, I remember uh, Phil Jones said to Jesse, you have any advice for our youth leader what to do? And uh, Jesse said, uh, well, just choose your targets and kick behind. And I kind of like, and I liked that. So then they went to have the opening night rally a few blocks away from the headquarters at Friendship Baptist Church on Herkimer Street. And uh, I don't know how we got there, if we walked or rode, but anyway, we were there, and I'm sitting in the audience with my mother. And uh, Jesse comes out, and they put him up, and church is full. And Jesse said, uh, you know, he's glad to be there. He cut the ribbon downstairs over at Fulton Street, and he was going to lay out the program. He said, but I got a surprise for y'all. A friend of mine is here performing at Carnegie Hall, and she wanted to come over and uh, and uh, give a little rendition to salute the opening of Operation Breadbasket in New York. And he did his long arm, Sister Mahalia Jackson. And Mahalia walked out. And everybody was like standing up and gleeful. And Mahalia looked and said, my little boy preacher. And Jesse looked like, you know him? And uh, and uh, she made me, like my head swelled up. And uh, I think that is part of what started bonding me with Jesse. Jesse became my mentor to this day. I may be poor, I may be poor. but I am, I am somebody. I may be on welfare, I may be on welfare. but I am, I am somebody. I may be in jail. But I am somebody. I may be uneducated. But I am somebody. I am black, beautiful, proud. I must be respected. It's hard to picture you in high school. But you went to high school. Yeah. You went to Samuel J. Tilden High School. Um, and just thinking about the fact that you had to balance being a high school student with your activism, how did you how did you find that balance? Well, it, it, it's funny. I talked about a year ago to somebody who went to school with me and was saying it was it was crazy to them and to the school principal. The principal's name was Joseph Shapiro. That by now, at the time I'm in high school, I'm already youth director of Operation Breadback. So I would be in the newspaper leading the picket line and in class the next morning. And the kids was like, did you see Alfred in the Daily News or whatever it was? And uh, it was more probably challenging for the school principal and teachers and my classmates than me because I was always different. So when they would talk about he's leading a rally after school or he was in the newspaper this morning, it was no different than the kids outside playing stickball say he's in there down the basement preaching his sister's doll. <laughs> it was the same world. I was mm -hmm. always different. And it was always something in me, and I think it was my spiritual connection, made me strong enough to say, I'm not going to adjust to y'all. You're going to adjust to the fact that I'm different. Going back to your relationship with Bishop Washington, <clears throat> it seemed like he had a plan for you. He was nurturing you. He was cultivating you, traveling with you, maybe with the idea that you take over for him someday. You I might think, become a bishop in the Church of God in Christ. I think that Bishop Washington probably wanted me to be a bishop in the Church of God in Christ and felt he was preparing me. But I think when I went the civil rights route, and, and, and in many ways, 
the influence of Adam and mm-hmm. Jesse as role models made me go a different route. Uh, even Reverend Jones. Reverend Jones used to say to me in my mid to late teens, uh, Alfred, now I want you to go to seminary and I'm gonna get you a big Baptist church. I said, no, I wanna be like Jesse. I wanna build my own organization. Ain't no life in that. I think they had different projections and I did it my way. It's interesting hearing you talk and recount these years because not that long ago in our conversation, we were talking about how your father left. He was removed from the, the scene of your life. It's you and your mom right. making away. And then as you fill in the years, we start to hear the names of all these other important figures who it sounds like became male role models for you at a time when you, you had lost yours. You had lost I, your dad. I think that is totally accurate. And I have wondered a lot in my older years whether my mother knew that uh, it was important to give me male role models to emulate, look up to. Otherwise, I was going to find male role models elsewhere that might have took me down a different path. And I think uh, in her own way, wasn't well-versed, wasn't well-educated, she understood that if I do not put him around the right role models, he might join a gang, and a lot of people do because they want something strong, some image they want belong to something. And I make him belong to something like Operation Breadbasket and look up to a Bill Jones or Jesse Jackson. If not, he gonna join the Tomahawks or join the job mm-hmm. stuff. I really think that it it felt natural, but it was too. Uh, well placed to not have some thought in it. And for her to think even to bring me to Bishop Washington and him to think to bring me to Bill Jones. And, and she, you said earlier she'd created the, the uh, temple for you in the basement at the home. Right. So she was cultivating. Yeah. She had a mind of she how understood. do I help and nurture this? She understood that she was nurturing and you could have a seed but if somebody doesn't water the seed it won't grow. And uh I, I was blessed with good surrogate fathers. Mm-hmm. Though my father left. If my father had stayed there, I probably would have never knew Bill Jones. And Bishop Washington probably wouldn't have played a central figure. And I never would have met James Brown. And he became like a surrogate father. So I tell my daughters who had grown that maybe what was painful was God getting my father out the way because he had better fathers. You mentioned James Brown, and in the seventies, you went on the road with him, and you you were sort of a, a an advisor to him, a yeah. spiritual comfort to him. He what obviously was a mentor was, to you. Had that come about, and was that your jumping off point into adulthood? Would you say? I, I absolutely. I, what happened was. Uh, I had formed my own youth group in 71, National Youth Movement. And in 73, a young guy joined named Teddy Brown from Georgia, same age as me. I started youth group, I was 16. This was around, I was 17, going to 18. And I found out he was James Brown's son. And uh, 
one day we got to where Teddy was killed in a car accident and uh, shattered everybody. The leading disc jockey in New York at the time was a man named Hank Spann at WWRL, and the head of community affairs was a man called Bob Law. And Bob Law was, had his finger on the pulse of what was going on in black activism. And he told Hank Spann, uh, uh, you know, Sharpton, right? He said, yeah. He said, if James Brown wants to do a memorial for his son, his son used to go to this youth group that Sharpton had, Alfred Sharpton, and they told him about me. And he said, have him come by and meet me. And I went, and uh, I remember it was like Mahalia when I was a kid. James Brown was the biggest black artist in the world. And the only recreational memories I have of my father is he take us to the Apollo to see James Brown. Growing up in Hollis, James Brown had a mansion in St. Albans. And we used to go stand at the gate looking at the back door hoping to see James Brown. And I think maybe one time he waved out the window and we were like in ecstasy. The doctor, the black doctor, that brought me in the world. My mother's maternity doctor, if that's the right term, lived about two blocks from James Brown in St. Albans. He was a well-to-do doctor, had a banana-shaped pool in the back. So I'm in the dressing room with all these memories. This is the James Brown, soul brother number one. And he's talking rapid fire and all that. And we agreed to do this concert in Brooklyn. And I did it. He told me, if you listen to me and do it the way I tell you, you'll sell out, and I'm going to give your youth group the money in honor of Teddy. Yeah. And he was very specific how many flyers, where to hang up the posters, all of that. And I did it to a T. And at that time, unbeknown to me, he had had a little dip in ticket sales in his career because he had endorsed Richard Nixon for president the year before, and a lot of blacks were mad with him. Limousine pulls up night of the show, August 73. He jumps out in his jumpsuit, going to the back seat. He looks at his manager. How we doing? You got two shows, right? He said, yeah. He said, how we doing the ticket sales? He said, the kid did everything he said. You sold out. And he stopped. He said, I'm what? He said, sold out. First time he sold out in a few months because of the Nixon thing. Anybody picking it? No. They ain't going to pick it, this kid. And he put his arm around me, walked me inside, started the show. Miles Davis came to see the show that night. Now I'm in Seventh Avenue. You got Miles Davis in the wings, <laughs> James Brown on stage. Mm -hmm. And uh, I came out, gave him an award, all that. Two weeks later, his manager calls me, Charles Bobbitt. Mr. Brown would like to see you. He's going to be in town because Brown had his office in Georgia and an office on Broadway. I went up to see him. He said, think about doing some other stuff with you. And we did some other Thing out, I think Pennsylvania. Then he called me and said, I got a tape Soul Train. I'm taking you with me. I said, the Soul Train? Yeah. Sends me a ticket. I fly to California. Takes me to Soul Train set. And Soul Train was the biggest thing in the world to black kids at the time. And I'm like 19 years old, I think. And uh, he says to Don Cornelius, and the miller said, I want you to have this kid, Reverend Sharpton, give me an award. Don Cornelius said, you know, Mr. Brown, we don't do that show. He said, 
Don, I want you to do this. He said, yeah, it don't quite fit the format. He said, you know how to do the big payback? He said, no. He said, well, you're going to do it if you don't let this kid do this. So he demanded it, and he put me on. He knew that would build me with young blacks all over the country. I'm on Soul Train. When I got back to Brooklyn, I was like Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. Little by little, we developed this bond. And his wife at the time, Dee Dee, said to me, as we started getting closer, because he was very private. I was one of the few people he let come to his house. She says, I think in many ways James sees you as what Teddy would have been. And after a while, him and his wife broke up, after a while, I became that son he lost, and he became the father I didn't have. And he would want me to wear his hair like him. He would tell me how you date girls and be famous. He would he would actually bring me in the in the uh, bathroom and say, "No, you should shave like this." The manly things that I never learned from my father about women and shaving and dressing, I learned from James Brown. He became my surrogate father until the day he died. We were like father and son. Our politics was there. He was a Republican. Our politics was different. We debate about that. Our our professions was different. He was show business. I was church. When I would go to his shows, Reverend, you're a preacher. You sit in the wings. Don't go in the audience. Don't hang out with the band because all of them do real bad things. You sit right there. I'm not going to let you be anything but a preacher. We had two different worlds, but we were like father and son. Teddy was his oldest, and I became, I think, for him that. And when he needed it even whether he realized it or not. And it took me a while to realize he became the father that I lost. And ironically, they had the same birthday. And in that world, it, the way you, you describe it, it almost feels like a small world, even though the, these people are larger than life. I think the, the uh, uniqueness of my experience was that uh, people knew them as trendsetters and superstars. Mm -hmm. I knew them, and that was the difference. Uh, and by me growing up a boy preacher, I knew the backstage as well as I knew the From stage. sitting in that office. Right. Yeah. And and sitting in that office and sitting in um, Hayes' dressing room yeah. or whatever. Whereas most people just know to get the best seat you can in the audience. I knew the backstage all my life. And I knew I knew the walking out to the stage or the pulpit and the nervousness in your belly. I knew that more than I knew sitting in the seat with the anticipation of looking at a performer because I walked with the best performers in black America to the stage and I knew that. Wow. And I grew up with that. I didn't have to learn that. I grew up with that because that's who I was. 
and I watched them do it, and I watched them how they handled it, and it was all honing my craft. I hear people talk about what happened to George Floyd, like there was something less than a crime. This was not just a tragedy. It was a crime. It's interesting you mentioned that because recently, I think all of us sat wrapped watching you deliver the eulogy at George Floyd's funeral. It was, it's a moment in time that one can't forget if you were witnessing it, even on TV. <clears throat> and I've always been fascinated by people who can comfort the grieving and the mourning. It seems like such an extraordinary act and a difficult one. And what you were just describing about seeing people behind the scenes and how they do it, I'm wondering if you can recall your first encounter with a funeral in particular and the loss of someone and what you took in from that. Because seeing you do what you did with George Floyd and it goes on from there, you know, you've done it so many times. I just think, how, how can he do that? How does he get through that? I sit through the beginnings of a service trying to read the audience and the family and trying to lock my experiences with them and then say in my mind, I've got to speak to the public on whatever the issues may be, but I have to speak to the family. And I, being that I've had so many different kinds of experiences, I could relate to them. Now, what would I want somebody to say to me? Somebody that lost somebody, like George Floyd or Eric Garner, whose funeral I did, all this, mm -hmm. you really can't feel what they lost. So you gotta give a meaning to it so they could understand as painful as it is, there's a reason for this bigger than you. And if you go, submit to the bigger calling, then it helps you with the pain and to fulfill that calling. But God took an ordinary brother from the third wall from the housing projects that nobody thought much about but those that knew him and loved him. He took the rejected stone, the stone that the builder rejected. They rejected him for jobs. They rejected him for positions. They rejected him to play certain teams. God took the rejected stone and made him the cornerstone of a movement that's going to change the whole wide world. So as I'm sitting there at a funeral, when I was a little kid, uh, I remember maybe in my teens, I preached the first funeral. I thought about how they, person, this was not a police brutality case or racial, just somebody just died. And uh, Bishop Washington had me do the funeral. And I thought about what it might have felt like to lose somebody. And I put myself back in Hollis, looking out the window at the driveway and realizing after a while, daddy wasn't coming back. And this person at this funeral, the person in this casket will not be coming back. And I spoke from that pain that I felt as an abandoned kid to that person saying, it's gonna be hard, but they're not coming back, but you can make it anyhow. And no book of homiletics
can teach you how to talk to the pain you know. And do you still find yourself drawing on that feeling? Oh, yeah. To this day? Absolutely. That's the go-to for you. That's the place That's you the go to. That's the go-to for me. It is not only the go-to, it's the never left. It never left mm -hmm. me. It never left me. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think that's, it was sort of almost a form of social death, the way you're describing it. As it becomes a social death, and it becomes a uh, a sense of meaning of the pain. You can bear pain if you know if it has meaning beyond you, because then it just doesn't hurt you. You're hurting for a reason bigger than you, but it still hurts, and it it. It keeps you also grounded and centered. Love abide. God will take care of you. I was like Floyd. I grew up with daddy gone. Mama had to make it with welfare checks. I used to go and shop with the food stamps. A lot of folks say that, but the way I know for loners, if you've been on food stamps, is I ask you what color was your food stamps. Because if you don't know the different colors, you just fronting. But I used to slip the little gray slip so my friends wouldn't know I was on food stamps. But mama told me something I never forgot. She said he may not be there when you want him, but he's always on time. The Lord will make a way out of no way. And I can tell you 40 years later, he walks with me. He talks with me. Tells me that I'm his own. He's been food when I was hungry. He's been watered when I was thirsty. He's my rock, my sword and shield, my wheel in the middle of the wheel. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He woke me up this morning, started me on my way. Yes, 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 yes. I remember um, 2013. I was invited by President Obama to sit on the on the platform of his second inauguration, and as honored guest. And I'm sitting there with uh, Martin Luther King III and his wife and Mark Morial, the head of the National Urban League. And we're all like about four to six rows in. Supreme Court justices are here, Joe Biden's family's here, then us, before the senators and the congressmen. And you come out to take your seats. Uh, it's live on TV and this big thing, and you come down the steps and they show you on the screen and people start clapping. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Barack Hussein Obama, do solemnly swear. I, Barack Hussein Obama, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute. That I will faithfully execute. The office of President of the United States. As I took my seat, uh, I remember one of the senators 
yellow. Hey, Al, you got better seats than me. And uh, I thought about how here I was, sitting there, a guest of the president, first black president of the United States, and uh, among all of these whatever. And I thought of uh, two things. I thought about, I hope some kid that uh, grew up like I did in Brownsville is watching and know you could do it. Hmm. Whole time I'm watching the inauguration swearing in and off. And I find myself a lot of times looking for that little chubby kid And that's what gives a lot of meaning to me. Yeah. And, and uh, I think about people in life. There's no, uh, I put it this way, there's no more poignant uh, pain than the pain of rejection, feel rejected. Mm and to be rejected by your own father, who you look like named after. And after a while, you learn that you don't need the acceptance of others. You learn to accept yourself. And I tell young people today that, uh, that's why I say during funerals, I preach to the greater meaning, because I tell young people today that had my father stayed, had I stayed in Hollis, I may have never been able to preach like that. And I never, uh, I would have never probably fought to be an activist like that. So maybe God, who I felt abandoned or forsaken me, let that happen for a greater purpose. Cause I wouldn't have been the Al Sharpton you came to know if I hadn't gone through that. And so often now, Tragically so, you're speaking to children who, because of a loss of a father in a right. different setting, are also now not going to have a childhood. And the world's gonna, different. Yeah. I'm, sitting, I'm sitting there looking at the Floyd family or the other families mm -hmm. down through the years, knowing more than they do, you'll never be the same because everybody knows your name now. And you didn't ask for it. You know, I aspired to be a, a leader activist at some point. They didn't. They woke up one morning, relatives dead, and from now on, they are part of a cause that they had no training for, no uh, pursuing it. And now every time you walk down the block, oh, that's George Floyd's brother. And I know the world is getting ready to change for them better than they do, and yeah. I know the world that if they are late on a bill, it's gonna be in the newspaper. If they have an argument with their wife, it might be on television. Your world is getting ready to change. And I'm gonna to try to empower you to know it's for a bigger cause yes. because otherwise it's gonna be more difficult for you to deal with it. I'm trying to interpret for you what you're about to go through. And as we lay you to rest today, the movement won't rest until we get justice, until we have one standard of justice. Your family's gonna miss you, George. But your nation is going to always remember your name. 
because your neck was one that represented all of us and how you suffered represented our suffering so we're going to lay you near your mama now you called for mama we're going to lay your body next to hers but i know mama's already embraced you george you fought a good fight you kept the faith you finished your course go on and get your rest now go on and see mama now we're gonna fight on we're gonna fight on we're gonna fight on. i ended every interview by going to the the great new york poet walt whitman and in leaves of grass song of myself he writes i bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass i love if you want me again look for me under your boot soles you will hardly know who i am or what i mean but i shall be good health to you nevertheless and filter and fiber your blood Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere, waiting for you. And I wanted to ask you if you can project out 50, 100, 200 years from now, when people come to the great city of New York and the hometowns that you lived in growing up, and they, they're, they're studying you, they want to know you, where should they look for Reverend Al Sharpton in New York, in your hometown, to commune with you? Where, where they should look for me is they should look for somebody, male or female, gay or straight, that's fighting to make sure that it's equal and that it's fair for everybody. And if they go under the surface of who that person is, they'll find that that person was treated unequal and rejected that motivated them to try to equalize society, to equalize what was inside of them. And there they'll find Al Sharpton. Beautiful. Let's let it lie there. Reverend Al Sharpton, thank you so much for taking me to your hometown. Thank you. Your Hometown is a Kevin Burke production. For more, visit our website at yourhometown.org, where you can listen to past episodes and find our show notes and artwork for each guest. You can also follow us on your favorite podcast app. And when you're there, take a minute to fill out a survey to let us know how we're doing. Please also follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, please look up the show's New York City series page, including information on live events, on the Museum of the City of New York's website at mcny.org slash yourhometown hyphen podcast. Now, let me thank the wonderful team that works with me each week on Your Hometown beginning with our executive producer, Robert Kulwich, our art director, Nick Gregg, editor and sound designer, Otis Streeter. Otis was there with me the day we recorded this episode, and he and I wrote home together, blown away by Al Sharpton's coming-of-age story and his willingness to give so much of his time to us when we knew he was in the middle of a very stressful summer on the civil rights front. Our composer and performer is Sterling Steffen, and our researcher is Shaquille Khan. The show's branding and website design is by Tama Creative. And Kayla Hale-Stern does an amazing job managing our social media. Special thanks, too, to our partners this season, the Museum of the City of New York. I also can't thank enough the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and our other financial supporters for believing in this series and our mission. Until next time, thanks so much for taking this ride with me. And remember, everyone's from someplace, and everywhere is somewhere.